Welcome to another episode of the Falling Stage podcast. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by my good friend, Andre Zamani. And so I'm going to ask Andre, would you be able to introduce yourself? Sure can. Yeah, it's great to be here with you, Mike. We, we've, we've come a long way in our friendship to finally be on the pod together today. This is very exciting. Yeah, my name is Andre, Andre Zamani. I, I was born and raised in Seattle, Washington, just over the border from Vancouver. I moved to Vancouver in 2019 to begin working at UBC as a lab manager for a cognitive neuroscience laboratory in the psychology department, one which Michael was actually an alum as a research assistant, which is how we met, because he was trying to get me to send an email somewhere, which I did, and then we became friends. And I was there, worked in that lab for two years as a lab manager, and then went on to do a master's degree with that lab, and I'm starting a PhD in that lab in about three weeks. So yeah, that, that's sort of the little quick rundown of where I came from and how I got to Vancouver in terms of work, at least. Amazing. And could you share a little bit more about maybe what your current work is these, these days? You mentioned you're you know, connected to this lab at UBC, the Cognitive Neuroscience of Thought Laboratory. That's right. So you are big into neuroscience, big into right. And so I'd love to hear a little bit more about, yeah, what's, well, how would you describe your background or area of focus at the moment? Yeah, my, my current area of focus is, is yeah, like you said, on thoughts, which sounds very broad because it is. And, and specific, though, I've been researching spontaneous thoughts, which I define, and it's, it's a hellhole of definitions. I, I define spontaneous thought as thoughts that arise in, in an experiential sense out of the blue. They don't have to be like starkly surprising, but they arise without a deliberate intention to, to cause their arising or without some sort of like feeling of automaticity to their rising as if you're ruminating on topic, just thoughts that kind of arise and come and go easily. And I study spontaneous thoughts using a combination of actually empiricism and contemplative practice. It's, it's quite interesting. So we have experienced meditators come in for experimental sessions, wherein they undergo fMRI scanning, where we scan their brain to measure actually brain activity a bit indirectly, but we measure brain activity. And we have these experienced meditators tell us while they're meditating, while their brain is being scanned, when a thought arises into their experience. So we have them tell us as soon as the thought arises, right, into their experience, we have them press a button. And then what, what we can do then is go back in, in the brain activity data to the time before they, they, they reported their consciousness of a thought and see, well, what happened in the brain leading up to the consciousness of a thought? So we're trying to understand how spontaneous thoughts are generated in the brain. That's, that's my current area of focus. And then there are other areas that are like that I've been mainly exploring in, in, in terms of theory because you can't you can't you can't do everything, it turns out. <laughs> I wish you could. Wow, that's fascinating. Can you share a little bit about how one arrives at a point where they're studying spontaneous thoughts? Like what got you into this? What yeah about your journey into this specific area? Yeah, so I I was actually talking about this last night with someone you may know, Evan Kaldvik from SFU. Okay, I think he, maybe he'd heard of you, which you can take as a compliment if you want. So, yeah, it, it, you know, the, the way I got here, actually, it, it, it's it's not all just some 
you know, intellectual curiosity thing. I, when I was getting my bachelor's in, in the States at the University of Puget Sound, which is in Tacoma, Washington, so south of Seattle, I, 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 I took Psych 101 when I was, when I was around, what, like 17 maybe, and, and I, I was deeply disappointed in it. I found it so boring and, and empty, and so I left the, the major of psychology and then switched to the history of science provide context for why psychology appeared so horrible to me, at least in, in the view I was receiving. I think I found it wildly unintuitive. In other words, like it's, it does not match at all onto my experience. The things that I am experiencing as a like intuitive truths about how like people work and I work, Western psychological theory, how it was being taught. I was, this is just like, so it's just completely ripped from experience. It has no contact with experience. Right. Mm -hmm. So my interest in thought actually stemmed from, when I was reading, when I got back into psych after doing some history of science, I was reading like a lot of the theories on how social cognition works, so how we interact with others. And all these theories were describing our, our, our social interaction as if we're in this interaction and we're modeling each other's mental states in this like hyper analytical way where we're very conscious of each other's intentions and, and, and the possibilities we, of how we might act onto one another. And I was reading like, that, like, this is once again, so out of contact with experience. Like when I'm in social interaction, I'm often just fluidly experiencing it, though there are times when I'm like hyper aware of intentions and, you know, and actions, but those are often states I'm in, right? And like whether I'm in an anxious state or, or whatever, right? Like I, that's when I'm acutely aware of everyone's intentions, right? But usually I'm just, there's unfolding dynamically. My awareness of people's intentions might be embedded into my very cognition, right? It's not like I'm actually perceiving it. It's, it's actually like how I'm acting. It's embedded in my process. So in a long-winded way, I actually got into thought because I believed that like, the accounts of how of social cognition were so direct of an accurate account of internal experience. So I went into study thought in order to better update Western psychological theories of social cognition and interaction. That makes sense. I, yeah. I agree with you. I think there's a lot of headiness and like conceptual analysis That's right. that happens in some of these like especially like psych 101 and like some of these earlier courses that try to describe i mean i guess that, that that's just the purpose of a science to some extent but i just i guess i'm trying to get at the idea that like when you're teaching psychology to young folks and people who are new to the field you kind of need to get build some of these models for people to understand it but then like you say it doesn't really represent authentically how you might experience it and what's coming up for me is the term folk psychology which is kind of what you're talking right. about right right like concept of like there's, there's psychology, which is like the analytical study of these models, but then the folk psychology is more of like the practical psychology or like how, I guess more specifically, folk psychology is like, from my understanding, and I haven't visited this topic in a while, but it's like <laughs> the idea of like how you form, it's like a philosophy of other people's mental states, right? And that's kind of what you're getting at. Yeah. Well, you know, you bring up an interesting question, which is that should like should people be introduced to learning about the mind in this way that starts from that that western psychological lens i i actually don't know whether i, I even agree with it anymore because really i don't think that I, I believe the models that are that are they're leveraged and taught in those introductory classes are they're not it's they're not just introductory models they were they were canonical models they were the main models through most of the 20th right. century right and really they came out of a sort of distancing and divorcing from from phenomenological analyses because behaviorism took took control essentially during the middle of the 20th century so we're focusing on just externally observable phenomena and so internal experience went untapped but now 
brought under the purview of science is phenomenology. So the, the study of experience itself, right? And and I, th I think what we'll see, depending upon which which young folk went out <laughs> in terms of which, which people become professors, we will see an incorporation actually of phenomenologically derived concepts that are that are also derived through the, di the discipline of the scientific method, but they will actually help form the bedrock of an introductory psychological education more, as opposed to concepts that are derived through poorly introspectively reasoned concepts and theories from the 20th century psychological movements that were rooted in behaviorism, ultimately. Interesting. Yeah, well, I'm excited to see how evolution yeah. in, the, in academia, right? And I think it's happening in lots of different areas, but you bring up a really interesting point here in psychology in particular. Um, before jumping into some more, I, I'd love to focus on some of the things that you brought up just previously, like in terms of what you're actually focusing on around spontaneous thoughts. But before jumping sure. into that, I wanted to just ask you about your weekend, because just before recording, <laughs> you started telling me about this really cool experience that you had, and I think it'd be cool to share with with the listeners. Yeah. So this weekend. Yeah, yeah. This this past weekend, so my partner Beth and I were were, were celebrating our one year anniversary, and we biked to Deep Cove, which is northeast of the Vancouver Metro, and we went for a kayak ride, a pretty serendipitous one, and we. Didn't kayak more than like 45 minutes out east from Deep Cove's Harbor. And before you know it, there's a pod of four orcas coming straight towards us. And and there's all these boats around them. I, I, you know, you kind of look at the boats and you think it's just like, oh, it's a bunch of like, you know, people partying, probably a big boat squad, you know. Like, <laughs> oh, no, they're all watching in amazement as these orcas that are like, I mean, really, to get to Deep Cove from the ocean, these orcas have to go up quite a, a like a, a fjord of a fjord essentially as carved yeah. by glaciers they go really far up but yeah before you know it we we, we kind of stupidly but also fantastically decided to position ourselves right in their path and and before you know it there was an orca within a meter of me me, oh. me and her and and looked in its eye and they kept coming up and underneath the kayak like legitimately all, all around us it was amazing and horrifying and I've found now that whenever I'm passing by the water since Saturday, I whenever I see like a flicker of color change, my heart like palpitates <laughs> in anxiety of fear, which like I is it's ridiculous. It's it, and it's not so much of this like fear. I think this is really the interesting part of the experience is just how like there's such a sense of like presence to these animals, right? Like we, I mean, we're both two two different animals sitting there next to each other. I mean, I'm sitting. I don't know what you'd call. <laughs> an orca in water it doesn't ever sit it doesn't sit yeah it's vibing right but yeah you you could tell it was just like moving around our kayak in such a flowing way just like how i might like ski around a mogul like that was the, the sense i got from it and it was such as this like damn like you are really there doing something that i'm so familiar with yet you are so unfamiliar to me and it was just so intense and it's been it's been in my mind ever like constantly since then that's incredible yeah that must have been really powerful especially when you have those very intimate encounters in the wild and especially with a creature that's like from a different world Dude, yeah just from a different medium yeah exactly i mean have you ever seen the cosmos tv show from not the one with neil degrasse tyson but the older one with carl sagan by any chance i've just seen clips of it on youtube but i never watched it there's one episode i love carl sagan's one a lot and not just because he's a psychedelic head but i think yeah but this might lend to why that show i think was better than the newer version but they have an episode about communicating with aliens and you know, their whole point is like, well, what about communicating with other humans or communicating with other non-human animals on the planet? They're alien enough. 
to yeah. us, right? Like that's that's alien communication right there. Try mm. you know try, try understanding a, a dog. Like you have some success. Try understanding an orca. You might have a little bit less success. <laughs> try understanding a fly, right? You're gonna get this like. Any, it was amazing. It was amazing, amazing. Wow, that's incredible. I like to imagine now that somewhere out there there are orcas that sit. At the <laughs> yeah, that posed a really they, interesting they question. Huh? <laughs> They're just like sitting like this, right, right, plotting their next kill. I think I heard a crazy thing, or I even saw a video of orcas. Yeah, the... and like with a seal on the ice. Did you see that? Oh no! Okay, go on. It was insane. There, I'm pretty sure it was an orca, and like basically, there's a seal that was like taking refuge on an ice sheet, and it was like you know it looked like a little island of ice basically. And so the orcas, because they're very smart, obviously, working together, they like swam directly at the ice sheet, and then they all flapped their tails kind of at the same time, creating this like ripple, which essentially started breaking the. Oh. Ice. They just started breaking this island of ice by like swimming in in a right, in, right. Eventually, the little seal like had nowhere else to go and he just like fell into the water and was uh yeah 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 no that's amazing i mean they have such a i, I mean every organism really has a, such an embodied it's surprising to us how I, what i'm trying to say is it's it's funny to me how surprising it is to us that organisms have an embodied sense of the world right you know like these orcas are like yeah like my tail creates force and i intuitively know that like i don't you know it's amazing though that they team up and do that of course yeah, well, because there's like intentionality involved, right? And I think oftentimes humans are a little bit human centric, and we don't think that maybe animals have that intentionality as well. That's right. Anyways, well, we could go talk about orcas all day. Thanks for yeah. sharing. That. Let's bring <laughs> things back a little bring, bit. Yeah, throwing it back. <laughs> Let's bring it back. So the Flying Sage podcast and the Flying Sage community is mostly focused around psychedelics, and so I know we haven't really talked about psychedelics so far. So if you're a normal listener, you're probably like, "What the heck's going on?" Well, today's a special episode because we're going to be talking a little bit more about the neuroscientific side of psychedelics and and also venturing into the specific topic of spontaneous thought. But just to set the stage a little bit before we jump into a little bit more of the maybe conclusions and the research methods and some of the things that you've been focusing on, do you mind just sharing a little bit about you know the connection between maybe cognitive neuroscience as a whole, psychedelics, and then maybe what you're working on? Like, could you lay the stage a little bit? Like, do you see first of all a connection? between what you're focusing on right now in psychedelics and how would you, how would you describe that? Yeah. All, all great questions. So cognitive neuroscience, how I define it is it's using neuroscientific tools. So measuring the brain, whether it's brain structure or brain function and combining that with, with, with just co cognitive modeling or, or tasks that, that try to evoke cognitive processes. So in other words, I'm going to measure your brain activity while you are doing something. That's actually as simple as, as you can put it, right? That's cognitive neuroscience. So I'm interested in knowing what the brain's doing when I'm having you do something when you're, or when you're doing something and I didn't have you do it. Right. So inevitably then it's a very fruitful union between that and psychedelics because we can, you can give someone psychedelics and measure what's going on in their brain and then what's going on in their brain when they're doing something under psychedelics. Okay. Same thing with thought. thought thought's been harder to study in cognitive neuroscience because usually in, in psychological experimentation, you know, the experimenter has control over when a stimulus is presented, right? Like I'm flashing a, a something on you, on a, something at you from a screen. However, in, when you study thought, you don't really have much control over when, if you take a thought as a stimulus, when it is presented, because it's originating from the person's own, whether it's deliberate intention, once again, like automatic constraint, like, like ruminative sources or just spontaneously in, in the sense I, I defined earlier. 
So it's a bit harder. So that's why I rely on meditators to tell me when they first notice a thought, for instance. There are other methods of doing this. But now, spontaneous thoughts relevant to psychedelics. Well, I, I believe that when, when in a psychedelic state, it's not, I mean, the psychedelic state is completely different state of consciousness than, than a normal waking state, a sober state. I mean, that goes without saying. Anyone listening to this podcast and knows that. Yeah, intuitively. But a question then is, well, how do how do thoughts change in psychedelic states? Right. So the reason that's an interesting question to ask is because the psychedelic state changes the brain so much that it actually allows us to better understand a ton of phenomena, even in when like as they occur in normal waking cognition. Right. So what is is can we even find a thought in a psychedelic state? What does the thought look like in the psychedelic state? In terms of brain activity, how does that compare to what a thought looks like in, in, the, in normal waking brain activity? And how can those differences help inform us what a thought is? Is it right? That's that's sort of the the way psychedelics are a good manipulation in a sense. Okay, yeah, that's really interesting. Thanks for delineating that. So it sounds like what you're saying is, you know, obviously cognitive science is like this wider field and a, approach to looking at the brain. Right. And psychedelics offer us this opportunity from a from a psychological or from a cognitive neuroscience perspective to like to be a tool to actually compare to baseline, right? Like That's right. This per- perturbation of consciousness that allows us to then better understand what regular waking consciousness is like. That's right. Very cool. All right. Well, I'm excited to dive into some more specifics here. You mentioned something briefly there when you mentioned, I guess, thoughts as like sensory input. And I know mm-hmm. this was the focus of one of your recent papers, right? It was like talking about how thought can can be recognized as an actual, as a component of a sensory stream, right? Right. Yeah. So, you know, I think as, as we, people generally talk about sensation in terms of things coming from outside of the organism, whether that be light, sound, touch on the skin, smell, taste, those are our most common senses. There are plenty others, external senses. So those are extra receptive in the sense of they are perceptions, reception, extra reception, they're perceptions of the outside, extero, right? It's extra reception. But there's also sensation from the inside. In from the 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 in. I'm getting an echo right now. One sec. So there are also sensations coming from the inside, right? From the body. So interoception, right? So it's again perception, but intero this time, inside, not outside. So you think there, okay, great. Right, we've we've done a great job as psychologists. We've acknowledged there's sensations coming from the outside and the inside. Oh, what what are, we've 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 got done away with with only focusing on the outside world, but we've actually still missed something. The inside is multifarious, right? So we don't just have sensations coming from the body. The idea is that we also have sensations coming from the brain. In other words, thoughts themselves can be cast, or at least should be. We should check if they if they it would be useful to cast them as sensations in their own right. So in other words, when a thought arises, an organism interacts with that thought, right? Now, we often don't experience thoughts as things we are actively interacting with in some some like highly removed sense, right? Like if if a thought arises, it may just fluidly transition into a stream of thought and you don't really have some sense of being removed from that thought. But that that seamlessness to which a thought arises and in, 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 in trances you almost could say the brain into a stream of thought suggests that there it is it is it could be useful 
to, to view thought as a sensation that over time the brain learns how to interact with, right? So it's almost as if throughout the lifespan of an organism's development, the brain must learn how to use or relate to sensations that it itself generates, just like it needs to learn how to interact with things that come from the outside or the inside, right? If, if you're hungry and you're a baby, you might cry because, and then that helps you get food from, from a parent, right? Or from a caregiver. So you're learning about the meaning of your bodily signal over time. You're learning about what hunger means, right? Well, what you should do in light of it, you should eat. And in the same way, then it's like, well, how does the brain learn what to do with thoughts over time and different kinds of thoughts, right? We might have thoughts that are intrusive, right? Thoughts that are, that are socially abject and we were scared of them. That's us relating to a sensation, a thought and trying to deal with it, right? So, and, and, and there's a, anyways, it's just, it could be useful to cast and sort of, sort of dislodge the idea of a unified brain self, right? And acknowledge right. that, no, the brain is multi-component and actually has to learn about its different systems throughout its lifespan. So that's sort of that view. And, and I think it might be quite clear to the listeners like why psychedelics could be useful in investigating how different parts of the brain relate to the, each other, right? Right. Yeah, well, it might be obvious, but I might ask you to even articulate that a little bit. But before that, I just wanted to share what came up for me was like mindfulness um, yeah. as a tool to help understand or even like develop introception. Because like you say, there's all these external stimuli that we are right. to and we almost like are conditioned to learn how to understand through yes. our, our you know, raising as children and through culture but then i think what a lot of people are, are discovering especially in the last few years i feel like yeah. more is like because as mindfulness really has like become more popularized in culture is just like how unaware yes as a collective we've been That's of right. our internal sensation so would you say that even just mindfulness itself is like a tool that people can use for this for the same outcome like do you see that being the same thing or do you see those being absolutely kind of oh yeah i mean that's yeah. that's why i use meditators in my research on thought right because i want people who, who who would probably have better access to to like at least at the very least the timing of, of internally generated right. sensations yeah interesting beautiful and then and then you mentioned yourself like there's even like psychedelics themselves as represent this like we said earlier this extreme state of consciousness and right. so could you share a little bit more with the listeners like how do you how do you see psychedelics playing into that? Yeah. So psychedelics in the view of, I think the most recent up-to-date perspectives on, on psychedelic neuroscience, psych the psychedelic state is a, is a, is a, it, it, psychedelics completely change what was called, this is a fancy term, the dynamical regime of the brain. In other words, <laughs> When one is waking, there are when it was in, in a normal waking sober state, there is a range of of states and, and dynamics that the brain has, right? Like right. in other words, I may if I if I wake up in the morning, I'm gonna go brush my teeth. I have a goal, I'm gonna do the goal, I might be thinking about what I have to do for the day, I plan what I'm gonna make for breakfast. Just the normal crap is what in other words, psychedelics completely change the normal range and dynamics of the brain. So what the organism is doing, right? Mm -hmm. So in that sense, it, psychedelics are an incredibly useful tool for psychological experimentation. I think we talked about this earlier, yeah. just because they, they completely change the organism, right? Like, and we can talk about the nitty gritties of this, right? But, but they completely change the organism in, in, in profound organizational ways. It's transient, right? There are some lasting changes, but they are 
far less powerful than the than the acute effects of psychedelics. Right. right. Okay, that makes sense. It's I've never heard that term that you used before. The the dynamic regime. Yeah. Jeez. yeah. Well, just the dynamical regime is, is okay. what it is. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's not... bit, the, the the pattern, right? It's like the, right. the dynamical is I think mainly actually neuroscientists trying to deal with their own history and saying, gosh, we were treating things statically for a long time. Now we gotta throw the word dynamic on for in front of everything, which I actually think to a psychedelic users is quite quite obvious. Right. So, so it is funny. You might find that science has unnecessary terms, and it is in part, I believe, often reflecting the culture that was introspective, introspectively empty for so long coming around. Yeah, I actually noticed that when, when I was volunteering at the, the, Car- the Cardinal Neuroscience of Thought Lab, because like, they were developing this dynamic theory of spontaneous yeah. thought. And I, I guess there was part of me that was like, well, of course, like, of course it's dynamic yeah of course it's dynamic why yeah. do you call it dynamic <laughs> right that's what i mean yeah it's 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 funny right it's a culture science is a culture and has yeah. been a certain culture for a while right yeah interesting okay well do you mind sharing so you've shared a little bit about the, the concepts that you're exploring a little bit about the intersection of psychedelics and spontaneous thought cognitive neuroscience can you share a little bit more about you know the the methodology methodologies that you employ as like a researcher as an investigator what sort of tools do you use to to get at these concepts because I, I can imagine it's very difficult like you said other researchers it might be easier because you're easily able to control a stimulus but now you're trying right. to teach this very elusive thing which is happening in people's yeah. minds thoughts trying to understand the origin of these things to me that's right baffles me so how, how do you what are some strategies that you have or like what, to, what tools are you using in investigating right. spontaneous thought yeah so like 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 mentioned earlier, in normal psych in the more common psychedelic psych, psychological experimentation, we can control when a stimulus is shown to someone, right? Because it's coming from the outside. However, in the case of studying whether it's bodily signals or thoughts, you don't have as much control over when that information consciousness, right? I can't I can't really control when a thought's going to arise in someone. So. To do that, you have a few options, or to, to study it, then you have a few options. So one, which I use, is I have people tell me when they notice a thought arise. However, I only trust people who have practiced doing that for a while, aka are experienced in specific meditation techniques that focus on noting, uh, noticing and noting the arising of mental events, subtle mental events, right? So that's one way you can do it. Ask your participants. That's kind of a joke in, in neuroscience. It's like, well, if you don't know what they were doing in between stuff, just, just ask them. Like, why haven't right. we been doing that? Just, just freaking ask people. Now, if you don't want, so I want to study the specifically arising of a spontaneous thought, which is a very subtle mental bit. So which is, again, why I want practice individuals. However, if I'm not interested in timing, but maybe I'm just interested in like how, what it feels like when something's unfolding, I can just ask anybody. Right. So in the past, I could, I, someone could just be having their brain scanned and then I can ask them in the past 10 seconds, did your experience, how did your experience, how would you rate your experience on this scale and this scale? Right. This is any, any two scales. So in our case, our lab did one where we asked people in the last 20 seconds, how, how deliberately constrained was your experience or how automatically constrained is your experience? Right. Trying to get at like whether there are these dimensions of constraint that sort of adjust the parameters of conscious experience that, that people can actually tap into and report on. 
So once again, it's, it's, it's about knowing who, who you're asking to report on what. So what level of expertise should someone have to report on what kind of internal phenomenology? Now, in the psychedelic realm, there are some studies that are, are, are being designed right now they're trying to have people report on cycles of like emotion and tension and release throughout a trip. So in that case, this is something interesting. Psychedelics, right, seem to really amplify the perceptual contents, right? This is sort of an intuitive thing that we all may know from using psychedelics. So they amplify, whether it's just simple sensory information, like things looking brighter or richer, they amplify this, the strength of, of, of any sensory stimulus, right? And so in that sense, you may actually be able to use people with less expertise to tell you about the internal, the, the, the internal experience of psychedelics because things become so much more obvious in psychedelics. So that, that's another way to, 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 to get at it is actually to manipulate someone's actual state. And then in that sense, give them the, an, an enhanced ability to report on or detect something. Right. Okay. Well, thanks. That's interesting to hear the different approaches that you take to the it sounds like the people that you're selecting is a, is a tool in a sense. Like you're really being careful about who you're working with. Are we back? Okay, that was that. I don't. That was not internet. I don't know what that was. I don't know what that was either. That's okay. Sorry about uh, that. No worries. What I want to, I might ask you to do one thing. I just yep. the audio. Can you put the mic a little bit farther away? Yep. I feel like sometimes it's spiking a little bit. Yeah. Thanks. That's perfect. All right. So what I'll do is I'm just gonna re kind of share because I think there was yeah. I'll just reshare what I just did. Yeah. Just kind of reflecting what you had just said. And then I'm going to ask you, I'm going to move into a question about kind of your recent findings, like looking at what are some more, what are some of the most intriguing findings or insights that you've come across? Does that yeah. sound okay? Yeah. And do you want them to be things I've found or, and, or things I've also recently just read elsewhere? It could be either. Okay. More so what you, I think what you found. Yeah. 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 All right. So thanks for sharing that. It sounds like one of the big tools that you're using with the the work that you're doing is actually with the people that you're focusing on working with like that's, that's a right. screening factor and it's also yep. in a sense a tool because you're really being specific about the type of tool inner tools that the people have that you're working with right that's so right yeah. just don't have those inner tools to be able to understand what's what sort of thoughts are coming up for them so mindfulness and people that are experienced meditators that's that's a big tool it sounds like yeah awesome so next question for you, I wanted to ask, you know, what are some of the most intriguing findings or insights that you've come across recently with your studies? Yeah, it's, 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 <laughs> it's a funny finding. So as I've described this current study, which I've, I've just sort of finished a, for a wave of data analysis for was predicated on previous research. So once again, the study being we have meditators undergo fMRI brain scanning while they meditate and ask them to report on the arising of spontaneous thoughts as they notice them. So a previous study found that in the four seconds leading up to participants' reports of spontaneous thoughts arising, so this is putatively before participants are conscious of their own thoughts, participants who are highly accurate at noticing thoughts, you find this sweep of activation that kind of starts based off some other evidence too, from the medial temporal lobes. So regions deep within the middle of the brain, such as the hippocampus and parahippocampus that are classically associated with memory. You find this wave of activation that sweeps through those regions, but then projects out to cortical sites. So cortex meaning the just the part of the brain we classically associate in images of the brain. It's that big normal brain tissue, that bundle tissue that surrounds the center of the brain that is characteristic of human brains and other mammalian brains. So well, basically what we find is there's this generative center 
that seems to show increased activation. And then that activation spreads throughout the rest of the brain, which coincides with the conscious experience of the thought. So, okay, we think then we've found some neural correlate of thought generation. I wanted to replicate this because that previous study had used a very specific subset of people, people who were highly trained, had an average of about 8,300 lifetime hours in just a specific subset of the pasta meditation and had been trained by a study team member who was a monk. So I was like, okay, like this is a very useful methodology. Can I replicate this using people who aren't as experienced in that specific technique? And I'm not a monk. So the study team that is not a monk. What I found is actually in the time leading up to participants' thought reports, I don't really get the medial temporal lobe effect. Instead, I get task act or activations that seem to be related to decision-making. So, and they're, and they're all left lateralized, which is interesting. Basically what, I, what I've been thinking is that, what, I, what, I, what I've been interpreting the results as showing is that participants who were still highly experienced meditators on average around 3000 hours in mindfulness techniques writ large, actually found it incredibly difficult to report on the arisings of their thoughts in the MRI environment. So instead of getting neural activity related to thought generation in the medial temporal lobes, I observed neural activity related to monitoring one's performance or making decisions in the time leading up to thought reports. In other words, I you can kind of cast this as people perhaps wondering whether or not that was a thought and that they should report it or wondering how well they are doing on the task. And that's actually what we were observing. So in a way, it's not as much as a, as a finding that teaches us a lot about thoughts in as much as it's a finding that teaches us a lot about the methodology and the people who are performing the task, right? I did observe some weak effects in the hippocampus, however, but they're weak and they're only for certain people. So there is some individual variability then in how well people can detect their thoughts that does not actually correlate with their meditation experience. So, so there might, in other words, when you get sufficiently experienced at meditating, you might just be, all be really good at detecting your thoughts accurately in time. However, as you're more, as you're less experienced, there might be more individual variants due to other traits or states between people, but we don't know what those are yet. Okay. So we're kind of interested in investigating that moving forward. Yeah. I was going to say that seems like a really interesting thing to learn more about. I wonder yeah. what, what traits those would be. Cause then it also kind of gives you information about what type of people are predisposed to be good at meditating. Too. That's what self exactly. And like, are those the people who also choose to meditate? So we are wondering whether, for instance, like the reason for doing meditation or your current motivation that's driving you is actually, if you could class, kind of cluster those into different subsets and find that those predict, right? So actually relatedly, like people who are scoring high on like psychosis inventories, right? Perform better for heart heartbeat detection accuracy. And, and an idea there is it correlates with actually their confidence and their ability to detect their own introspective sensations. So there's almost like, if you're overconfident, sometimes you're wrong, but sometimes you might actually be right. So it's sort of this idea that, that yeah, it may, it may actually depend upon like how confident you are, why you're doing something, et cetera, et cetera, right? Yeah, very interesting. I wonder also like if people were to do that sort of research, yeah, it might overlap with psychedelics in the sense of there we go, yeah. determining what personality traits yes. allow people to experience psychedelics differently. Like I've always wondered whether yes, personality traits are make people more predisposed to mystical experiences. Yeah. Because like I, I personally have had yeah. lots of experiences with psychedelics, and I've kind of like 
naturally just like built my understanding around psychedelics on what they do have done for me. And I think you, right. Music, yeah. Right. Like, yeah, you, yeah. All you have is your experience with it. And we know that psychedelics are different for every single person. So, but even if we cognitively understand that you can't move away from your experiential understanding right. Of things. Right. And so I've always, you know, everything I've built and done myself, I've, I've kind of built around this idea that like these things can be used as tools to contact mystical experiences and whatnot. But then, I know that for a fact that there's people that I've met who yeah. just haven't had uh, yeah. experiences. And it's like, I wonder why. Yeah, I, I do too. So, I mean, the so, like, there's a lot. No, we don't really have a way to yet predict, at least in terms of in terms of information derived from the scientific method. There's not really any surefire way to predict response intensity, right? So that's a very big and vague subjective metric you're talking about mystical type experiences which is more specific but yeah just subjective intensity of effects is like encompassing anything from how bad your stomach or how weird your stomach felt to how mystical an experience was right and but you used to be said that body weight mattered yeah right for, for psychedelics that act on 5-ht2a receptors right but body weight doesn't seem to actually predict response intensity now i'm not i, I want to be clear i'm not advocating for just ripping large doses that's that's not what i'm saying <laughs> about that but what is interesting then is that it suggests like you said there's something actually about the psychology of a person which you can still describe in terms of physics of course there's something about that that predicts response not just body weight which is that classic thing that we rely on now the only psychological trait that's been found to predict response intensity is this trait which i'm sure you've heard of michael called absorption trait absorption which is this like it itself is sort of a contested construct. It has subconstructs, as any construct does, as any, you know, we're getting into the game of sub and, you know, the confusing matrix of, of relationships. But it's a construct that's meant to denote how much someone gets absorbed into an experience, right? That's essentially what it's trying to, to, to capture. Now, there's a recent study done by Manesh Gurn, who, who you know, and I'm sure some other people listening to the podcast might know. He is finishing his PhD. McGill and then transitioned to his postdoc with Robin Carr Harris down at UCSF. Now he 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 did a study where he actually tried to see if they could find any relationships between people's trait absorption and just their brain activity as they're sitting in a scanner doing nothing. And they found no 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 effects. Now that's not too surprising given the design. It's hard to find relationships between psychological variables and just like the structure of normal of, of ongoing brain activity. But it just basically points to a, not, a lot more work needing to be done. And that's only with, with, with a response intensity. We can't find a relationship. So for mystical type experiences, it's probably going to be a hell of a lot harder, right, to, to, to find something, to find a story that we can tell. And, it, and it, for all we know, as you know, too, it might just be context more than anything. Yeah. Set True. setting. Set setting it was always going to be a huge part of it. But I feel like even with people that I come across who have had good Yeah created set and settings like they also still aren't predisposed to have yeah those mystical experiences and then strains a difference too right if you're talking mushrooms right. or different types for talking like subtypes of lsds or otherwise right true then that, you're getting even more factors you're getting even more factors right i mean i was talking to someone yesterly about the strain tidal wave of psilocybin right. mushrooms how it has multiple it. peaks is that correct i don't know that aspect of it i know it's a blend of different strains but I don't know. I haven't heard of the fact that it has different peaks. What do you mean by that? So, well, so I was just talking to someone and they, and they, they, they said that there's a strain that had multiple peaks actually, Okay. which I mean, whether or not that's true, it's conceivable that you could create a substance that has different metabolic sort of like 
you know, peaks, um, and, right. and, and whether that's through encapsulation of certain compounds, whatever, right? Yeah. But the, anyways, it's just like, Christ, that variability, right? Once again, in studying, you have yeah. to control for that. Yeah, interesting. I mean, I know like mushrooms, I've always been told and I've experienced that come in waves. So right. when I think about it from that perspective, I feel like most mushrooms have different peaks. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, fair, right? right. But I guess it depends how she's defining peak. That's right. But yeah, that's interesting. Very interesting. Well, beautiful. Well, let's move through some of these other questions that we've got for you. So I want to ask you, you know, coming back to spontaneous thought, how can a better understa understanding of spontaneous thought contribute to our understanding of psychedelia and altered states of consciousness? And I guess another way to ask the question yeah. is, like, you know, what's simply put, like, what's the point of the research that you're doing? Why are you doing it? Yeah. And, you know, looping back to that of how, how I got into it, it, it really is to provide a, a better, a better model or better description of our internal experience. That that's really what it comes down to at the end of the day. I think I, I, I found social interaction to just be such a nexus of, of confusing phenomenology, right? In other words, when we interact with other people, we get into such, 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 such knots together, right? To put it in terms of the, the psychiatrist already laying we end up in situations we don't know how we got there. Like our, so in other words, we might be interacting with someone over time and then we end up at a point in a relationship where we're like, why are we treating each other like this? We both don't know how we got here, right? And then looping back to psychedelia, you know, when you're on psychedelics and you might be with someone who you both have a pattern of interaction, let's say, but you both all of a sudden are both actively, know, you know that, you know you both are looking at the fact that your interaction history is such. So it's in other words, it's to say like, how come... I can have this relationship with someone and it can be so deeply unintentional in the sense of a conscious appreciation of intentions. And yet under psychedelics, we can both be so aware of the dynamics of our interaction history. And, and, and then the, the adjudicating, the, 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 the carrier of that difference between those states is thought. Because when I'm in, in a sober waking state and our interactions have led us to let's say some toxic dynamic between us, right? Let's say it's coworkers, friends, romantic partners, whatever, the, our knowledge of those intentions are carried as thoughts. However, in this, and same thing in the psychedelic state, but why are they so different? Like, why don't I have that clarity in normal waking consciousness, right? Why are my intentions not as obvious to me as thoughts, right? So I, I think I think studying thoughts, and once again, because my, my interests are primarily rooted in social cognition, I give those examples of relationships. And, and, I, I, and I find that then thoughts are the sort of central focus in explaining why we end up and why social cognition is so hard for us to study and describe. Because it's difficult to notice thoughts. It's difficult to understand them. Yeah, especially when you're not taught this. In school, right. right. In Psych 101. Yeah. Yeah. Or just like 101. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. After you go to school specifically to learn about the mind and they still. Yeah. And you, you leave with learning less in a way because they've confused you. <laughs> yeah. That actually kind of segues to another question I had for you, which kind of came up just while yeah. you're talking, which was just like, how is your day-to-day -day experience affected by the fact that you study all this stuff? I feel like if I was in the, like, you're just in the thick of like studying yeah. thoughts, right? And like thought generation and thought yeah. how thoughts transition. And so like, I'm just curious, like, do you think a regular day in the life of Andre is like pretty distinct from maybe someone who's not? Um, studying these things or like do you when you're about going about your daily day like does this the normal waking cautious is it like still the same for you like i don't know i'm curious to know like how this sort of research maybe affects your day-to-day -day life 
Yeah, I will start by saying I'm no more cool or special than anyone else, and especially probably less so than my highly experienced meditative participants or true psychonauts or people who are just gifted with in- in incredible introspective accuracy at the get-go, whatever that latent variable might be. I, I find it, it's, it can be two things. It can be incredibly fun, incredibly fun, and then sometimes tormenting, not in that classic Hollywood tormented genius sense. That's not what I mean to characterize myself as by any means. But it can be incredibly fun and tormenting, right? On the fun side, it's that you have all these additional things you can notice, right? If, if I, I can notice how, like, you know, like a door might open and how my eyes might flitter. This is an experience I had. I was waiting for someone to come in for, to a room who was late. And I noticed my eyes moved to the part of the door that then I realized upon inspection was just the part of the door that had the highest contrast with the wall behind it to show me the, at best accuracy when the door moved, which would tell me about when they're coming in for the meeting late. And so you get these moments of like just ridiculous like depth of like perception, right? It's like the fact that that's a perceptual object for me is so fun, but it can be tormenting when you get overly self-reflexive, which is an experience that's not unique to me, right? When you over-reflect on something to the point where you can have slight states of dissociation and derealization, right? That's an incredibly normal experience for people that actually is not, it's not talked about enough in my experience. And so we freak ourselves out, but it's incredibly normal to be hyper-reflexive and actually disembody yourself, right? So if you keep representing your your experience as a perception in and of itself you're going to sort of remove your lived sense of lived experience from the experience so that happens that can happen to me depending upon the stressors i'm going through another sense of of, of, of treachery that, that studying this can afford is when you wake up in the morning and you're kind of just hazy in the head maybe you were out drinking or or, or you smoked weed and you're hazy that happens to me the next morning i i'm incredibly frustrated because i don't have the normal landscape of perceptions that i'm usually afforded in my internal world right if i'm hazier or duller in the mind and that that torments me so much it's it's a horrible relationship i have to my own mind that when i'm in a hazy state i'm upset i'm, I'm terribly upset and i'm anxious because i can't experience my normal range of, of 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 perception so that's that's sort of my answer to that interesting and that that upsetness comes from just the the the, the... The distinction that you notice and like the yes. fact that you're like, I want this. Yeah, it's like why yeah. why yeah, exactly. It's right. Yeah. I mean that's probably common to a lot of people, right? And, and, and so interesting. Well, thanks for sharing that. It's nice to have like it's cool that you have a specific example. The one of the doors is funny. <laughs> yeah. I I remember that day. I was like, oh shit, I've crossed the threshold. <laughs> <laughs> so next off, I want to ask you about your PhD. So you're actually pursuing a PhD in psychology. About to. About to, right. Yes. About to pursue your PhD in psychology. So first off, what is it like being in that position, Mm. about to embark on this journey? And could you give us a glimpse into what your future research plans are, what the course of that PhD might look like? Yeah. So grad school can look very different depending on who you are. As I mean, that that goes without saying for everything, right? (laughs) So let's just start there. And what I mean by that is it, in my view, it can be simultaneously the most time, the most free time you've ever had in your life. And simultaneously, the least free time you've ever had in your life, right? Because you can be up against the craziest deadline of all deadlines across so many different careers and be working, I mean, like seriously, like 12, 14, 16 hour days, back to back to back to back to back. Or you can be like, oh my God, I haven't worked in three days. Holy. And that could be Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. So it's a funny, it's a funny line of work in that sense. But what I'm looking to research is continue researching spontaneous thought. In terms of the, 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 the data I am collecting, I still want to do analyses on other data sets that I don't collect, which we can talk about later because they do relate to psychedelics. But 
my own research will likely continue into studying the, 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 the origins of spontaneous thought in the brain. For instance, one, one line of research I have that, that, that my, my PI, my boss, in other words, and I have is that we want to continue using this methodology of having meditators report on their spontaneous thoughts, but we want to change how we image their brain. Instead of just looking where in the brain, what region was active before they were conscious, we want to act, ask at what cellular layer of that region was their activity first. Now, this is called laminar fMRI or layer-specific fMRI. The, the basic idea is that the brain, all across the brain, is organized into stereotypic layers. So like near, simply, like every brain region, most of them have six layers in the cortex of cells. They're differentiated by the types of cells that are present in each layer or the parts of those cells that are present in each layer. Other parts of the brain, like in the subcortex, beneath the subcortex, have fewer layers. So they have like simpler roles in information processing. It doesn't mean they're less important. It just means the information might be less, they might have less complex inter informational interactions with other parts of the brain. But once again, does not say anything about their importance. So the reason we want to look at this is because going back to the idea of thoughts as sensations, people have investigated how brain activity moves across cell layers for things that are coming from the outside world. In other words, this has let us understand that specific cell layers are involved in input or output relationships. So we want to know, do those relationships hold for thoughts? So does the brain process thoughts as sensations in the same way, in a layer-specific way, as it does externally generated sensations? So we kind of want to push to the ultimate test. How truly different is a thought arising from an external stimulus like a light arising? Right, and, and one way we can do that is by measuring the, the differences in, in layer-specific activations. So that's, that's sort of one arm of, of that I would love to continue in my PhD. It would be a lot of work and you probably wouldn't see me for a bit, but. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> but I'm sure it'd be worth it. That sounds really interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, do you mind sharing with people just a little bit more about the, the layers? Cause I know like in the neocortex, it's, it's like the most, is it the most layered? Part of the yes, brain? six layers on average. On average. But then, and then you're saying that most other regions also have those layers too? It can decrease. And then there's some right. layers that are, or some areas that don't have layers. And, and, and a lot of these like layerless, <laughs> say that, regions are often involved in, in, in the limbic parts of the brain. So limbic is a word often, it's, it's, it's a third, dirty word in a way, but it, it, it kind of connotes like, denote sort of emotional or like or like affective processing i, I want to make clear that emotion doesn't exist in any one part of the brain it's a it's a distributed state right but there are areas of the brain that deal in affective information more than others so let me give an example so this is psilocybin data so there's an fmri study done in switzerland by katrin preller with psilocybin and they measured the brain activity, people's brain activity under psilocybin at three separate points during their trip. So early during the trip, kind of during the middle, what they considered the middle, basically it was around, I, I don't remember the exact numbers, but like 30 minutes, maybe 45 and 70, I believe. Just three different time points during the trip. Essentially, they found that at the beginning of the trip, what they observed in the analysis they performed is that the visual cortex, so the part of the brain that deals with visual processing, gets more connected to the rest of the brain. Okay, like that might make sense their own phenomenology of a trip, right? Like the, the sense, the sensory qualities seem to come first. Then you had at, at, a little bit later in the trips around like, I think 45 ish minutes, there was a decrease of connectivity of regions that seemed to be involved in processing bodily sensations. So 
these are the regions that have some fewer layers. Now, the reason for that is, is, is not entirely clear, but one idea is that these regions process simpler information in a sense. It doesn't mean they're less important, but they're processing information that's broadcasting a more contextual or broad global information. This is how I am feeling, right? As opposed to the nitty gritties of things. So that, that's kind of an example. It, it's interesting. It's sort of like once, once the limbic regions start having this, this, this being affected by psychedelic effects, as we all kind of know from when the stomach starts churning, if you've taken just like actual mushrooms, right? Or, or if you're on, a, on an ayahuasca brew or otherwise, right? You have that stomach effect, you have that bodily effect. And then you get those strong, more cognitive ego dissolution effects often. Mm -hmm. So it seems, it seems that there, there is some sort of progression in terms of like going from regions with less layers to more layers throughout trip though that needs to be experimentally investigated like right. proper right not not extrapolated post hoc like i'm doing right the next question i have for you is what excites you most about the current state of psychedelic research and where do you yeah. see the field heading in the next few years uh, psychedelic research in neuroscience is so such an interesting sociological phenomenon like, well, like i love the history of science right so I, I really consider it in that lens it has pushed the field of neuroscience in in, in insane ways it is so because we only had so many, so few psychedelic data sets with brain activity data because, well, law enforcement, because of the law, because of regulations, right? People don't want, not wanting psychedelic research to happen. I don't mean to sound that conspiratorial, but, you know, the bureaucratic system of that's in, the, the beliefs that are embedded in our bureaucracy about psychedelics, because there's such so few data, people have to use the same data set over and over and over to figure anything out about the brain. So this led to the development, or at least the, the use of tons of novel analyses on the same data sets, which ended up pushing neuroscience in general forward, because all of a sudden you have the same data set where about like 12 different analyses have been run on it, right? And they've taught us so much about the brain on one data set, which sounds scary. You've only used one data set to learn about the brain. It's like, exactly. That's the problem of this. But so my, my excitement about the, the psychedelic neuroscience it, it also is its relationship to neuroscience more generally is that these analyses that have been introduced are so promising to understanding so many other facets of the brain and psychology, right? I also then am excited for new data to be collected in light of what we have learned as a field in general about how better to conduct studies, right? Because we can enhance the data quality so much. So I, I think we're on the verge of a new wave of psychedelic research that will actually focus more on individual specific effects and not group level averages, as it's become more and more clear in neuroscience that individual variability is so high, especially in the areas of the brain that are further from sensory information. In other words, that deal in more abstract information processing, which are paramount to actually some of the ego dissolution effects, it seems, that, that are experienced under psychedelics, right? So, Right, totally. And then another question I had for you was, how do you navigate the intersection of scientific research right with the mystical experiences reported by people psychedelic journeys this is kind of going back a little bit to what we were talking about earlier with maybe the different yeah. personality types and and whatnot but you know i, I would assume yeah. that most people listening to this know what we're talking about when we share mystical share about mystical experiences but maybe you could even maybe even just touch on that initially and then and then yeah how do you navigate the intersection of scientific research with with those experiences or how do you think about it yeah, yeah, totally. So I, I can I can give a, a very simple like I'll just do it. I'll, I'll give an example. So say someone says that you know they they talked to so say someone was on NNDMT right they took NNDMT and they had an entity encounter. Let's say the entity took the form of some like 
large omnipotent being or presence or multiple of them. And they communicated some sense of like fundamental truth, like some, some big knowledge was, was imparted by, from these beings to the experiencer, right. Uh, on an NDMT. Like I, I, and, and so I'm, I, I often come from, if I heard someone having that, which I know this is a real experience. I don't, I, I believe this is completely real, but how I would interpret it is that, well, under an NDMT, the brain actually <laughs> is not as much at the behest of the external world to guide its states. In other words, if I am sober, the external world is going to be guiding my, 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 my conscious experience a lot more. I'm going to be experiencing what I'm seeing or hearing, right? Or my bodily states in their normative sense will guide my experience. If I'm hungry, I'm going to go to the kitchen and get food, right? Whereas under NNDMT, my bodily signals don't really do anything for me much. Like they don't, they don't tell me to go do the normative things. The external world is actually cut off. So it's not guiding my experience. My experience is extend, instead being guided by what I believe is the brain's embodiment of social hierarchy and and power and and knowledge it seems like there's some sense of like the brain can generate a very intense dreamlike world i'm not don't mean to cast them as dreams they're very distinct phenomenologically from dreams but the brain actually creates an, just a new a new conscious experience but it's actually predicated upon its own knowledge of of how information is imparted and how information that is important is imparted. So in other words, throughout our life, we've come to learn that information that's deeply unsettling or moving is imparted on by powerful things or beings. Religious contexts might be demonic or godlike or angelic, right? And, and so they will impart upon you true knowledge. What, what, what someone might say, well, like, but this is knowledge I did not have. How come I experience it? It must have come from outside if I didn't know it already, right? But I don't think that's necessarily true because... If you consider when you're generating a creative idea in general, let's say, you let's say you come up with a creative idea, a solution to some problem. Well, you didn't necessarily, in many cases, do that with new knowledge that wasn't already in you. It was a new reconfiguration of knowledge that you had. So that's sort of how I would cast that mystical type experience. It doesn't mean it's any less real. That's just how I would interpret it in terms of my grounding in, in, in Western psychology. Yeah, that's super interesting. It's cool to hear your definition of it. And this idea that, you know, mystical experiences can represent a reorganization of existing information. I think a lot of people get caught up on or, or even just like find it very interesting to think about how real these experiences are. Yeah. Whether or not it is internal or external. I know a lot of people I've been hearing lately will, will kind of give an explanation that indicates that it's both. And that's right. maybe kind of what you're, you've just done too, is like it kind of, it can be both and, you know. But yeah, it's fascinating to, to, to think about just how powerful these mystical experiences can be and, and how connected they are too across different peoples. Like I know I That's was right. some, one researcher, John, Bill Richards, I think he would explain how he just would recognize a lot of different, a lot of patterns in people with, when they, the people that That's right. experience mystical experiences, they were commonly there's just a lot of commonalities, right? And I think there is some good research now yeah. on this, right? Yeah. Um, the commonalities in with the mystical experiences, but it is interesting what you say about it, the internal versus external, because I know in in that particular book I read, I think it was called Sacred Knowledge. He talks about how, you know, there there was this one participant in a study who was I think like a young boy from the Bronx or something, and he was participating in a study using I forget what the exact use of it was for. Maybe it was for treating PTSD at the time or it was some early research study 
And in his experience with psilocybin, he had this encounter with what he described as this like eight armed figure, which kind of ended up seeming like it was Shiva, like right. Hindu God. And the next day, like he didn't really know what it was during the experience, but then the next day he came into the office for the integration session and he saw it happen. He happened to see a picture of Shiva on a book in the office. And he was like, Oh, like that's what I saw, but he didn't know what it was. And he right. wasn't brought up Hindu. He didn't have any of these. Right. He didn't have any knowledge around what this figure was, but he was certain that this is what he had seen right. in his experience, right? And so I think that's kind of, I don't know, what do, you, what do you think about that? Yeah, I know that, that exactly. So that's a, that's a great example. And I, I find those so interesting. My immediate, my immediate explanation of, of that would, would, would be two possible ones I would go down. It might be a mix of both. The, the boring one is like, oh, maybe this person had seen Shiva before. I don't really think that's totally the story. I think it's more that, once again, we associate in it right now in our cultural, the cultural moment of that person, right? Sort of associate power and, and, and sacredness and weirdness with beings that are going to have non-normal and anatomical forms, right? Right. So we don't really know how many arms the thing he saw and his experience yeah. had, right? Like it could have had six or four or five, but right. It's like hard, but like either way, it wasn't a normal anatomical layout. Right, yeah. because it's otherworldly. It's 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 something that's different but similar. Right, it's, it's something that has in, increased capacity to you, and one easily visually symbolic form of increased capacity is more limbs. Right, so so that that's sort of how I would frame it. Is that like like in other words, Mike, if you and I got a spaceship, and we went and visited all the planets that had things like us that got to similar, you know, socioeconomic cultures, we'd find. Relig religiousized body plans like multi-armed figures over and over again across across species like us and there's i think it's a pattern of the universe that organisms will deify bo unfamiliar body plans because they once again represent that sort of like that like access being closer to the ultimate right right having more ability right right and it's a very, it's really a simple, actually a very simple symbol of it, right? Obviously what we focus on is their knowledge, but we have to remember that we visually represented them as having something more too. Yeah, true. Interesting. Yeah. Thank you. That's really interesting to think about. I, I hope I, I hope we get to do that sometime. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> We're going to live the rest of our lives in disappointment after that idea. <laughs> so moving on to maybe a few more questions, because I think yeah. we have a little bit more time. I was going to ask you. What are some of the challenges or obstacles that you or other researchers face when studying altered states of consciousness and spontaneous thought? Maybe highlighting some new ones, because you, you have talked a little bit about that today. Yeah. Um, like when you're studying spontaneous thought, it's very hard to... Timing. The timing, right? The, yeah. The onset, but like, are there any other kind of obstacles that you, you see? Yeah. So, I mean, one is just the legal, right? I mean, like that's, that's stepping outside of the whole thing for a second. Like, like yeah. the... the, the laws in place the regulations once again it's just there's a lot in the way of doing something like this which is incredibly frustrating and unfortunate yeah okay so there's that methodologically i i think this is extremely fascinating and it gets back to our discussion of well, what predicts what a trip is like for someone right so we may not know what to measure so okay let's say we like want to figure out like you said like what personality traits predict something like predict some mystical how often a mystical experience happen or what kind of mystical experience happen or the intensity of the mystical experience whatever 
what if we don't know the right personality traits? Like what, we're using all these old ones from Western psychology that are, that are tried and true. Like they, they predict a lot of variance, but what if they don't predict variance for psychedelics? Right. Like, so, so some of them do, it's already been done. Like certain like big five personality traits do increase like after psychedelic use, for instance, like openness to experience. But what if they won't be that useful in predicting some of the things, the subtle phenomenological experiences that happen in psychedelia. Right. So in other words, we just may not know what to measure. Right. Like we can measure brain activity. Cool. But if we want to relate to that to the person and what they are like, what if we don't have the right data about how to characterize people to correlate to things like a, a great example of this? OK, this is just this is such a, a bit of a tangent. But going back to the idea of unintentional or of intention in social relationships, is something I've become interested in, for instance, is is in a, in, a, in a piece of writing by Hannah de Jager, who's a philosopher who talks about uh, social, the phenomenology of socializing. And she provides this excerpt, this example of a, of a romantic couple who go on vacation together and they get to their vacation home. And one person from the couple goes to a window and takes a deep breath of fresh air going like, <sighs> and in, in the excerpt, it's described that this was audible enough. So the other partner heard it because the partner who took the breath wanted the other partner to act to, to relax a bit more and get into vacation mode but the person who took the breath didn't totally appreciate that that's what they were trying to do with the breath right so it's sort of like a pseudo intention okay all is to say there are people in my life who i believe are more frequently do those kind of behaviors or they do subtle behaviors to try and get me into their frame of mind right we have no descriptor in the psychological corpus for the propensity of someone to do that mm. but like it's it's such a to me it was such a phenomenologically obvious thing i'm like but there are people who i like either avoid or or just i know that like when i'm with them they might try and subtly invite me into their worldview through these like thing intention pseudo intention i call because i don't think everyone is usually too aware of when they're doing it they're sort of aware that they're doing it or that the intention of why they're doing something but anyways that's a very long-winded answer to say that there are an endless number of trait and state like constructs that I don't think we have discovered and worked out. So that holds us back from really understanding all these like subtle differences in terms of brain activity that, that relate to these experiences, right? We don't know what they are. Yeah, totally. Do you feel like that's going to be any part of your research journey with your PhD? Not my PhD, but I think way down the line. Yeah, I, th I think so. It's a lot of work and I'm not honestly well-trained enough in, in designing and vetting constructs to know okay. how to do it. Yeah. Well, those are some yeah interesting obstacles to think about, challenges. Definitely seems like a difficult path yeah. to turn ahead. Yeah. The next question I had for you, kind of stepping away now from some of the specific research methodologies, was just asking you, in case there's other people out there that are researchers themselves, do you have any advice for aspiring researchers or people looking to get involved in the field of psychedelic research and neuroscience in general? Yeah, I think I think there's a few things. One, one is if you want to get involved, you, you should focus on specific PIs, which is the basically the academic term for boss, the person in charge of the lab, the principal investigator. You got to look for specific employers. Essentially, you can't just go. You don't just want to apply to a university writ large if you know there's psychedelic research. You got to reach out to the laboratory themselves. Whether that's the PIs often aren't that accessible via via normal communication channels like email because they're very busy and they get a lot of spam mail. So you often want to reach out to the people who work with them or for them. So postdocs, which are higher level research assistants in the lab, or PhD students or other grad students. I think another thing I would I would say is if you can't directly get involved with psychedelic research right away because it's it's small it's limited so so it's a very competitive pool probably right 
of people trying to get into it, just get in the field in general, right? Like get in a neighboring, a neighboring topic, like study thought or study some aspect of mental health, something that's adjacent, right? Right. And, and you don't always, and another thing is don't become attached to the idea of collecting your own data right, right away. There's a lot of publicly available data sets. You can do theory work that, that, that tries to make meaning of data, right? There's a lot of ways to get involved without having to actually collect or conduct clinical trials or work on healthy people. Right. Okay. That's good advice. Thank you, Andre. The last question I had for you was, how can the knowledge gained from your research yeah. to raising some awareness around using psychedelics responsibly? Or like, how do you think your research can apply to people yeah. psychedelics moving forward, if, if at all? It's yeah, it's broad. You know, I tend to think that the re- research on thought, it, it, the, the 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 real hope for its therapeutic value to, to the world for me is that it just teaches us to 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 be more mindful and, and and aware of all the different relationships we can have to our thoughts, right? So if we can, as a lot of people in psychedelia are familiar with, if we can separate that sense of ourselves from thoughts, you you can you can perhaps hopefully lead repair and, and engender more healthy relationships between oneself and one's thoughts, right? So like I was talking about earlier, like if you are struggling from hyper-reflexivity, knowing that that's normal, right? And it's a normal range of behavior for an organism to engage in. If you, if you, if you, if you get lost in rumination, it's like knowing that there are actually tools you can use to get out of that, right? To create more distance between thoughts and you. Right, so I, that's kind of my hope is is just to provide a general sense of awareness of that there is actually a wide range of relationships one can have to their thoughts. That's beautiful. That's a great campaign of yours there, and I think it definitely has <laughs> an application in a whole wide range of fields, right? Because thought is so yeah. it's 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 ubiquitous in experience, right? It, yeah. It's yeah, yeah. Beautiful. So to wrap up, I'm curious if there's kind of anything that we maybe haven't touched on that you wanted to talk about or. Yeah. There's kind of any thoughts that you're having at the moment. Yeah. I I, I guess, I guess one last thing I can share. Cause we, we didn't really get into any of the, the neural correlates of psychedelia t- today, right. which, which I, honestly for what it's worth is not like the most terribly important thing, which sounds ridiculous. But I, I say that because in many ways, I think the psych, the experience of psychedelics themselves tell us so much already. Right. I, I'm big on that. Even though I'm a neuroscientist, I kind of, you know, I, I believe in the value of, of, of first person phenomenology. But I was reading something today that I think is useful for, for people listening, just to, just to get a little bit of that neuroscience. It's a paper I've read before, but I always love revisiting it because it's so freaking confusing. I have to remind myself about what, what the outcomes were. It's by Daniel Toker, published in, I think, 2022. Essentially, all, all it is saying is it's describing, it's basically, it's an empirical report, but in one part of it, they're trying to describe how best to understand the psychedelic state relative to sober waking cognition in terms of informational dynamics. And so I like this analogy. I'll share is that sober waking cognition is a bit more like ice than liquid water. So in the sense that the sober cognition is, is less symmetrical in an informational sense than the psychedelic cognition. And so imagine this, if you have a piece of ice, you can rotate it right in your hand and you'll notice that it only has a few axes of symmetry, right? If you, that's, if you have a good ice maker, if you have a crappy ice maker, this might be this horrible, conglomerate of, of, of water. It's just all craggly and there's no symmetry if you rotate it, right? And so sober waking cognition is a little, it's is not that symmetrical in the sense that you can get onto these tangents of goals or worries or, you know, all these things. And, and so if you, if you took the totality of the states, that brain states that you may wander into in sober cognition, 
it's not symmetrical. You can rotate it and, and it has all these weird little alleys and avenues it gets up into, right? But when you take psychedelics, it pushes you closer to symmetry, right? In that you could rotate all the states you get into and you would find more symmetries in psychedelic cognition because you're not going to wander into as distinct states. You're going to enter the state of more oneness, a globally coherent state where different types of psychological states don't take precedence over one another per se, or if they do, it's for brief moments. So that's, that's sort of a, a, a way I, I like to, to think about it, is that you can kind of cast normal sober cognition as being more ice-like and uh, psychedelic cognition as being more liquid, right? It, it's more, it has more symmetry. Just to clarify, would it not be the other way around? Psychedelic is more like ice? No, the psychedelic would be more like liquid. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. Got Yeah. Got well, because think about it, right? Because it's a, an ice cube, right? It, it has all these imperfections in a sense into its form, right? I can rotate it around and it might have like a weird peak on one side. It's not right. on the other side. And so right. I can't actually like find rotational symmetry points, right? Whereas water, I could put it in a, in a sphere and it would just completely be a perfect sphere of liquid water. Right. And so in that sense, the psychedelic state is itself a more, it's, 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 it's a dynamical regime. Once again, it's a, it's a, it characterizes a pattern of brain states that are just more similar. Mm. So in that sense, it's more liquid. It's more like liquid water than it is like ice water. Interesting. I've never heard this analogy before. It's very interesting. Yeah, it's mathematically dense. That's that's for sure. That's why I have to reread it because I always freaking forget. <laughs> What's that? Did you know what the you said it was a paper by what was it David Toker? Daniel Toker. It's Daniel. it's just it's a piece about low frequency brain waves and and their okay. and, and information dynamics. Yeah. Very interesting. Well, maybe we can I can find the link to that and paste it in the. Yeah, have fun. It's 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 a brutal one. We'll read it every day. <laughs> so I have to do. <laughs> well, thanks for taking the time out of your busy day to chat with me, Andre. I appreciate it. Oh, of course. Thank you so much for, for giving the opportunity to come on here and, and, and talk and hear the sound of my own voice and <laughs> all that. It was an extremely fun time though. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was fun. Is there anywhere people can go to like learn more about this work that you're specifically doing at the moment? Yeah. Oh gosh. I mean, like it sounds so lame. You can check out my Google Scholar page if you type yeah. in Andre Zamani. <laughs> that's all awesome. I have. Yeah, yeah. that's all I got. Beautiful. Well, I will share that in the show notes so people can find you and, and maybe read some of the work that you've been doing. Yeah, feel free to email too. If, if you ever want to talk, I'm always open to, once again, I love firsthand experience. So open to getting emails and everything to discuss and all that. Amazing. Well, thanks again, Andre. And I look forward to hopefully getting to, to have you on the podcast again sometime. Sweet, dude. Talk to you soon.